Hey, well, today we have two of our, our finest teachers that are going to encourage you today in the Word. We continue in this series, um, Asking for a Friend. And today's conversation um, really revolves around theological questions, questions that often uh, keep people from really stepping foot into the church. And for some people, it keeps them from really seeking after Jesus. Um, we have our very own Dr. John Mannion who's sharing along with Pastor John Kelly. And I know that you're going to be blessed and encouraged by what they have to share with you today. I also wanted to make sure that I continue to thank everyone in our church that continues week in and week out to faithfully give to the vision of this house. Listen, I want you to know something. You are making an eternal difference. We as a church are taking ground. The kingdom of God is being advanced. Salvations are happening. Next steps are happening. Healings are happening. Breakthroughs are happening. And I'm so grateful for that. If you're giving for the first time today, I just wanted to say thank you. Um, there are multiple ways to give. You can give through the website. You can mail in a gift if you'd love to do that as well. But I just want to say thank you to those who are giving for the first time today and a special Thank you to everyone who's so faithful in this house um, to give week in and week out. Listen, lean in um, during this time to be encouraged by Dr. John Mannion and Pastor John Kelly. All right, we are going to get into some icebreaker questions first. So here All is right. the first icebreaker breaking, question. Breaking the ice. Um, out of Doc John and John John. <laughs> John John. that's me. <laughs> I'm John John. Who has written a bigger book? Wow. Mm. Uh, <laughs> I'm gonna. Uh, I've actually written kind of like trilogies, oh. so it's smaller or mid-sized books that together are big. But I, I don't think it would be as big of a single book as what because I've seen some, and even just with the the notes and everything, it's uh, it's big. It's big, yeah, yeah, <laughs> yeah, yeah. I have some. I have some larger books. Yes. Um, yeah. So I think you will win. Okay. Okay. But when I'm your age, when I'm 40, I <laughs> I will I will hopefully be challenging well, that. Well, my publisher my publisher tells me that this is why it's taking a little bit longer is because of the longer book. Yes. All right. It happens. It okay. extends everything. The editing. The All right. Here we. This is another icebreaker. Question okay. Here two. we go. You both have six kids. That's true. See, that's why you're John and I'm John, John, John. Yes. If you could trade one for one, <laughs> who would they be? Question. All right, go ahead. Break the ice. Um, if you this, could trade one for one, who would they be? Could we do it temporarily? Do you have a child that's very good at cleaning? Hmm. Cleaning. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. Because I'm not going to name names, but my eldest is, is sometimes makes a mess. So I would trade her temporarily for... The one that you have that could clean our our, our house. So All right, there you, go. there you go. Okay, I'll take that. But but what do I get in exchange? <laughs> she will make a mess somewhere oh, and do okay. crafts, and it'll be amazing. And put up posters. And well, that actually stuff. works because my wife loves to clean. She there literally loves to clean. And yeah. so we'll trade you somebody who does not produce for my wife. But just for a short for time. For somebody who does produce. And yeah. Audrey will be very happy. Okay. Good. All right. All right. So let's get into some questions. We are in part four here of asking for a friend. So these are all theological questions, right. questions about 
to God. So here we, here we go. This is the first question. How should I, as a Christian, respond to people who tell me that if there was a God, he would stop sickness, war, and atrocities? They tell me that God is either evil or he's non-existent. What do you think? Yeah, this is, I think, a classic question, right? This is right. a classic question right. regarding uh, really an apologetics type of question. It kind of usually goes something like this. If, if God is the creator and he's a good creator, Right. then why is there evil? Well, right. let me deal first with the... Let's, let's, let's talk first about this implication that God created evil. Right. Um, first thing off the bat we have to understand is that God didn't create evil, not because he's not the creator, but because evil's not created. Yes. So yeah. evil is not a created thing. Evil is a twisting of that which was created, a pollution, a corruption. It is taking what is created and, in a sense, turning it backwards, even as evil, the word, E-V-I-L, backwards is L-I-V-E. It's, it's, they're backwards things. It's evil has disrupted, has corrupted that which God created, yeah. life, and it's turned it backwards. Right. And so that, that's the first thing I think we have to understand is that evil is not created. So in that sense, it's not God's fault. Right. <laughs> the other thing I think we have to understand is that it's not like God's up there on the throne and evil was kind of twisted his creation and he fell off the throne and he's like in a tizzy running around, you know, saying, oh, myself, oh, myself all over the place. Right. right? He's still sovereign God. He, with regard to evil, is still over evil. So evil is not created, but God uses it. God uses it. God right. uses evil. So Romans 8.28 says, that uh, God works all things together for good to those who love him. So, so the nature of evil, we have to understand, it's not created. The, 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 the nature of God, we have to understand, he uses evil. He's not intimidated by it or thwarted by it or even altered by it. And thirdly, the nature of the kingdom of God. The kingdom of God is such that his rule is over right. evil and he is fighting that evil and eventually evil will be banished. Yeah, that's good. It's just this question that if God can prevent evil and horrible things from happening, why, well, that why implication, not? You know, question, why, yeah. why, why doesn't he? And I, I've even heard it said kind of like, you know, either, it's kind of this either, either or. Either God is all powerful, but he's not all good. Therefore, he won't stop evil, or God is all good. He is a good, you know, good, benevolent God, but he's not all powerful, so he can't. So it's kind of yeah. this either or, you know, he either can't or he won't. But even that that entire argument, it comes from a false assumption. It's it's assuming that we know what is good and evil, that we actually are elevating ourselves and we are, you know, taking on that that throne where God sits and we are becoming the the, the definers, the definers, right? Yeah, we're that's now the issue. defining and we're standing in judgment over, over, over God and we're defining what good and evil actually are. But we as, as humans, we're not even in a place where we can, right? We can't um, understand and compre comprehend an infinite and all-powerful and all-knowing God as right. to why and how he's going to, as, as you said, use these things. 
So at the end of the day, yeah. regardless of how we can possibly understand this or not understand it, right. that's the bottom line issue. Right. Is, is we're, we're not the definer. The, the question itself almost implies that we are the definer. Right. That, that's a good way to put yeah. it. Let's, all right, let's go to the next one. If God created us with free will and then humanity used that free will, why did God wipe out everyone with the flood for expressing that free will? Doesn't mm -hmm. seem fair. Right. What do you and think? I, I love the the ending of, of that because it just, you know, it's kind of, well, the, the once again, it's putting ourselves in a place where we're judging God and where we're kind of saying, well, we are defining, we're deciding what is fair and what isn't fair when once again, we're not really in a place where we can define that. So people often, they, they wonder as the last question even said, well, why doesn't God remove evil or deal with evil? And when it comes to the flood, we actually see a situation where God does remove right. evil. God right. does deal with evil. And I think a lot of people don't really understand um, the implications of what that would mean. If God were to fully remove evil from the earth, that would require that he removes the source of evil, which is us, which is our own choices. So do we really want God to remove um, evil from the earth? And um, uh, so even just with, with this whole issue of, of the flood, it's a, it's a great conversation when it comes to, you know, morality and ethics and, and people will, will accuse God of being a moral monster, right? Why, how could God do this? But um, actually in Genesis 6, Five, God actually gives us a reason as to why. It says in uh, Genesis 6, 5, it says, The Lord saw how great the wickedness of the human race had become on the earth, and that, listen to this, every inclination of the thoughts of the human heart was evil all the ah, time. There's the free will. Right? It, it doesn't say, <laughs> right. you know, they, they made mistakes, they sinned, but then they repented. Right? Yeah. It says, no, no, no. All the thoughts of the human heart were evil all the time. And when, when your heart is full of evil, that means they've chosen. There's no more room for repentance. There's no room for redemption. So basically, they by rejecting God, they have chosen their fate. They have chosen yeah. destruction. So it isn't, you know... God that's doing this, they're essentially choosing the end point of the path that they're, they've walked on. Yeah, yeah, that's right. So the free will is there. Okay, so free will, it's not fair. Yeah. God gave us free will, so it's not fair. Actually, it's the exact opposite if we understand free will and what right. it is and the opposite of free will. Free will, let's, let's think about it. Okay, so you have free will. Now, what does that necessitate? If you, for you to have free will, there has to be choice. Right. So free will necessitates choice. Let's think of choice like, like a picture. It's like two different roads. So if, you're, if I'm going to have free will, or if I do have free will, that means there must be choice. If there is choice then there has to be evaluation or assessment or what we might call judgment right. because there's two different things. So judgment actually makes complete sense only with free will. Mm -hmm. Now let's take the opposite of free will, determinism, what philosophers call determinism, right. basically means there's no free will. 
or I'll put it on a street definition, robotics. <laughs> you're, you're a robot. Right. If there's no free will, if I don't have any free will, then by definition, that means there is no choice. There's no choice. There's no, there's no, there's no relative issues. There's only one thing. Well, that then would necessitate no judgment or no justice or no assessment. Why? How can you assess one thing? Right. The only way you can assess something is if there are two things, if there's choice. And so determinism or no free will mm. is actually that which is not fair. Yeah. That's what's not fair. Right. Free will is not not fair. Free will is completely fair based on its own definition. That's I think the, the other issue here is uh, justice, even man's definition of justice. It's different than God's definition of justice. Right. Man defines justice this way. Everything has to be the same. Everything's the same, then it's fair. God doesn't define justice that way. God defines justice this way. He, he defines justice as what did you do with what I gave you? Mm. Regardless of what I gave you relative to someone else, what did you do with it? So God's justice is very different or his fairness is very different. We as, as, as mankind, we tend to think of fairness more from that angle of sameness. Right. And that's the, what we want to say, okay, that's fair. And if it's not same, the same, it's not fair. God says, it has nothing to do with sameness. It has to do with what did you do with uh, what I gave that's you. That's good. That's yeah. good. I, I think even just with this whole issue of the flood, often we'll, you know, and humanity will look back on that story and we'll go, thank God I'm not living living in the, those those times or right. I, I'm not involved in that and it's almost kind of kind of humorous because what they're saying is you know it's as as if God's justice that was present there is no longer valid right or it's right no longer as if God active God was right? moody <laughs> right but but even even if you look at the New Testament passage Romans 6 23 it says for the wages of sin is death. That's in the New, New Testament. That right. is a New Testament passage. And that is true even here and now. The wages of sin is still the death. That wasn't just something that was valid at that t time. Um, the, it's still true here and now. And it's actually that judgment and that, you know, what we would look at as being bad news, yes, yes. that's what sets up the good news of the gospel, which is the second half of, of that verse. The wages of sin is death, yes, but the gift of God is eternal life through Jesus Christ our, our okay. Lord. So it's that bad news or that judgment or that justice of, of, of God that leads us to a place where we can actually accept him and, and experience the good news of salvation. Yeah, because there was choice. Right. You are free to do and to choose whatever you, you want to do. However, you're not free from the consequences. Right. Or you're free to walk down whatever path you want, but ultimately you're going to reach the end of the, that, that, yeah. Yeah. that path. Yeah. That's good. All right, let's um, go. I'm go thinking with the next this one. is question three. No, this is question so, yeah, two. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Let's go to the next one. Question three. Here All it right. is. <clears throat> if God knows everything including my thoughts and my future, and if he is sovereign over everything, then really what is the point of prayer? Can mm. prayer really change God's mind? Wow. What do you think? Well, that's a lot in that question. Yeah, huh? yeah it's All almost right. like 
two or three or four questions in one. All right. That's okay. Let's start, first of all, on a foundational level with regard to this question. Prayer, what is it? What does it do? Can it change God? First thing we have to look at is, okay, who's doing the prayer? Man. All right, so what is the nature of man? The nature of man is that he's a receiver, not a creator. Right. So we have to keep that in mind, first of all. Okay, whatever we say about this question and how we understand prayer and what it's doing, we have to understand that man does not create. Right. He receives. Uh, so what is the free will then of man? Well, the free will of man is that man has a free will not to create. Your free will and my free will doesn't make things happen. Mm. It's not a source issue. It's not a creational issue. Why? Because we're not creators. So even if I have free will, I can't have it within an arena that I don't exist in. Right. And so my free will is a free will to receive. That's the, the arena I exist in. That's my nature. So I have a free will to receive. Now we can ask the question, then what is prayer? Well, prayer is not something that's going to create something mm. or change something or, or make it happen. Prayer is something that's going to receive something. It's going to be it's going to be a channel of something. It's going to be a conduit of something. And so then we, we begin to understand what is prayer. Now, here's the question. If we, okay, so we go with that. Can prayer change God? Mm. Number one thing here is God cannot, does not change. We, we know that book of Malachi says, I do not change. Right. God actually says that. But he, he does not change because he cannot change. Right. Because of his nature. His nature is such that he cannot change. Why? Well, change is a time concept by its definition. Okay, I, I, you can't have change outside of time. Change implies and necessitates time. Here's one thing that happened, and that this is going to change. It, there has to be time. Right. Well, God has no time. Yeah. He he never began. Right. Now we were not going to think about that too long because that'll blow your mind. Right. But God never began. So he has no time, and the scripture gives evidence of that. It says things like, for God, a thousand days is like one day, or one day is like a thousand years. Or it, it says these things basically saying God has no time. If God has no time and change is a time concept, then God cannot change. Right, and, and also that, that idea, it's, it's implying that God and his plans can somehow be improved like they weren't good at uh, yeah, first, yeah. but over time, over over our influence, over our prayers, God's mind is being ch ch changed. Oh man, that's and a huge issue. There's even some um, uh, passages that I think, from what I've read, have almost been interpreted incorrectly. Um, just this idea that, um, and correct me if I'm, I'm off here, but there's this Hebrew word nesh. Sham, mm -hmm. which is which has been t translated, you know, as God regretted, right, right, um, right, right, uh, right. or God re re repented. When in actuality, that word can mean that God simply expressed sorrow. He was sorry Be right. because of the the sin and the wickedness of the people. It wasn't that he regretted anything that he had. Done or that God repented, it's that God felt deep sorrow. It grieved his heart that people had chosen to, to reject him. 
Yeah, that's completely correct on that word. In fact, the scripture says the exact opposite. It right. says, God is not like man that he should lie. And then it says, God is not like man that he can repent. Right. He can't repent. And here's the danger. You brought this up. It's something called process theology that's been around in our Western culture and in our higher education institutions for several decades now. This idea that God is maturing, mm. he's changing, uh, kind of the picture you get is a poster up on your wall with the cat hanging onto the, the tree. And it right. says, you know, hang hey, on. Hang you in know, there. Hang in there. <laughs> it's getting better. Right. You're, you're getting better. Can you imagine if that's really the way things were? Right. And can you imagine if that's really what we believed about God, mm. that he's maturing? He was a little messed up before, but he's getting better. Right. God can't do that. It's, it, there's, God is perfect, and he's, here's the thing, he's always been perfect, he is perfect now, and he always will be perfect all at the same time. That's good. So there's an impossibility for God then within that realm to change. Man is the one who is not perfect. Man is the one who is the vessel. Man is not the contents, he's not the source, he's the vessel. In John chapter 1, verse 12 and 13, it says this very clearly. It says, How's it, how's it go? John chapter 1, verse 12. As many as received him, he uses the word received, he gave the right to become children of mm -hmm. God. But they were not born of blood or of the will of, man, the will of man or the will of the flesh or of the will of man, but they were born of God. God's the source, not man. Man's, it's not man's will that is, that is made. It's God's will that is received. So what is prayer then? What does prayer do? Prayer is a wonderful, incredible thing. Prayer is not what changes God. Prayer is what changes man. Mm, that's really good. And part of the reason for that is because God cannot be changed but man can be. Man is a time-bound individual. He can actually change. And so when we pray, what's going on is we are changing in two ways. God is changing us to become more like him through our relationship and our interaction with him. And God is changing us in the sense of we are now involved with what he's doing That's good. instead of not being involved. Right. And somebody might say, well, I don't know. Is that really very impacting, very important? It is so important. If we think about the importance of being involved with God, the fulfillment of being involved with God, the significance of being involved with God, I like to think of it like this. Here's what prayer is to me. It's man doing what he can do in the realm that he lives in, which is the realm of a receiver, a conduit, a channel, a means of grace. God's the grace, God's the source, God's the contents. So prayer is like, being a mailman. You're right. a deliverer. You don't write the letter. Mm. You don't create the content of what's going in the mailbox, but you deliver it. Yeah. And that is about as significant as it gets. It is as significant as it gets for man because that is the perfect thing for him to do that, that is within his nature. Yeah. And so when we pray, we are very involved with what God's doing. We don't create and we don't change the will of God, but we deliver it. That's good. Yeah, uh, I love that I, idea that it's what we can do in the natural, and then God is doing what, what he, he is in, in the supernatural. Yes. I, lo I lo love that. And even just the, I think there's, there's almost this approach that many people ha have that, you know, obviously comes from just the, the humanity that we 
live in, that we approach prayer and we look at prayer almost from the opposite or the upside down view as to how God intends it. So we have this list of needs, wants, and mm. desires, and then we go, okay, well, maybe God can help me, can help these things come to pass. So we present those requests, which we're supposed yeah. to do, and that, but then we think that, okay, I'm going to change God's mind. I'm going to change what, or I'm going to, you know, pray that God changes what he is doing and that God comes into alignment with what I want him yes. to do, yes, which in good. reality, prayer is the exact opposite. We are to pray and change our needs, wants, and desires and bring those into alignment with him. And, and uh, a lot of people... Um, don't really, or skip over, or maybe don't think about this aspect of this verse. It's found in First uh, John five fourteen, and it says this: "This is the confidence we have in approaching God, that if we ask anything according to His will, He hears us, and we know that He hears us. Whatever we ask, we know we have what we ask." Of him, so where does the confidence come from, right? Where does the faith or the confidence that we have in approaching God come from? Well, it comes from um, being a child of God who is continually being molded and made and aligned into the will of God, and ultimately, that's where that's where this whole idea of sanctification and growing in our relationship with God is. We are day by day getting to the point where whenever we present our requests, our needs, our des desires, mm -hmm. God can grant those things and make them, them happen because they're perfectly already in line with what his will and what his mm. plans are. Yeah, I like your theology, John. I really, no, I do. I really like your theology and the way you're presenting things on several of these questions because what you're doing in, in, in what I'm hearing is you're lifting up God to where he should be right. by putting man right. down to where he should be. You can't have two you people can't, on yeah, the... You can't have two thrones. Throne. And that's what happens. And, that's, and when you say that, it hits me, you know, it's true. It's like even saying that statement, does prayer change God? is really kind of implying that, because that would mean that God had a certain will, but you make it something different. Right. And, and, and in, doing it, in doing that, what you're saying is, I, I want prayer to be what I want. Because right. if, 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 if you understand prayer as being what God wants and God's will, then you are putting him in the proper place and you are seeing yourself correctly and you're not flip-flopping and saying, no, I have to be up here, what I want, and God has to be down here and right. change what he right. wants. And, and, and <laughs> prayer actually is very logical if you look at it from the perspective of a loving father and a child, right? right? Like we, we as parents... We want our kids to come to us, to present things, to let us know what their, their dreams are and their, mm -hmm. their hopes and their wants. Mm -hmm. But if my child comes and asks me for a box of razor blades and, right, and, a, right. and a car and right. they're, they're, they're only eight, right? Like I want them to have things, but uh, sometimes the, the most loving thing that I can do for them as a father hmm. is to not give them what they, right. they ask, ask for. There will be a time for that. There will right. be a place where you are mature, where, where you can handle that, and when that actually aligns and is a part of what I have for you, but it's not right here and now. Prayer is coming into alignment with God 
in that sense, choosing his choice and choosing to be what he has called us to be, which is a conduit, a vessel, or in this, I like the, the, this, this metaphor with prayer, a deliverer. Right. I mean, that to me, does that, like somebody might say, well, I'm not real motivated to pray if I, because I think it doesn't matter. Oh, it matters. It matters. It matters. The mail is not going to get delivered, at least by you. If you, if you don't pray. But you know what? If you pray, the mail is being delivered. That's good. And you are the one who's doing it. And God is sovereign over both the, both the ends and the means. He's so, his sovereignty is he's sovereign over us in our free will and how we operate and the ends. But we have, within that, we have a complete free will. And when I use my free will and participate with God and am involved with God, and use the things that God's given me to, part, to be, be with him, there's nothing more fulfilling, there's nothing more important, and there's nothing more significant. That's good. Very good. All right. You think we should... Uh... Yeah, do I? Yeah. yeah. Let, me, you wanna... let me go ahead. Let me go ahead. Grab one of those. All right, here we go. Ready? Question four, I think. Yeah, why does the Old Testament God... Why does the Old Testament God seem so different mm. from the New Testament? This is a classic question, very <laughs> yeah. important one theologically. Why does the Old Testament God seem so different from the New Testament God? The God of the Old Testament seems more harsh and full of wrath, and the New Testament God seems more loving, compassionate, and caring. What do you think? Yeah, so that's almost kind of the stereotype, right? We, we see Again, the, the way, Old yeah. Testament God, he's you know full of justice, he's full of wrath, he's very violent. Um, whereas the New Testament, their version of how they see God, he's full of mercy and grace and compassion. But in actuality, you can find examples in the Old Testament as well as the exactly. New Testament exactly. of the opposites of those. So I would, you know, looking and reading through the entire Bible, you could you you could actually make a very good factual case that God is very consistent. He is consistent in his justice mm -hmm. from old to new. He is consistent in grace. He is consistent in in justice, you know, justice, love, and mercy. So, say for ex example, even just um, the New Testament story of Ananias and Sapphira right, in Acts right. 5. God strikes them down dead for lying. Um, this this is supposed to be the the kind, loving, compassionate God. He doesn't, he doesn't change. Right? He's still the same and then always. We yeah. also read in he Hebrews 12, 29, once again, a New Testament uh, passage. It, it describes God as being a consuming fire. In Hebrews 10, 32, it actually says it's a fearful thing to fall into the hands of the living God. Now, flip that. In the Old Testament, we, we even find um, King David here. Once again, this is an Old Testament passage, Psalms 103.8. It's uh, King David describes God. He says this, the Lord is merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love. Is, isn't that interesting that we see kind of the full myriad, this full view of who God is in scripture. And somehow we've kind of just selected and taken certain things that kind of can fit our stereotype mm, or our narrative mm -hmm. of how we want to view, yeah. view God. Yeah. God is not moody. Right. He's not a moody God. He, again, it's just another way of saying he doesn't change. 
God does not change. It's not, and this is very important. I've heard a lot of people in, in, in my past theological discussions in higher education or just in, in, in church and ministry say things that seem to imply that there was a God in the Old Testament and there's another God in the New Testament. Right. And they're basically different gods. That is so erroneous about the revelation of God and very dangerous as to the way you would even perceive God. Right. God is, does not change. Why does there seem to be some difference? Here's why. Because of what we call progressive revelation. Right. God, has, the business that God is in and has always been in, is revealing himself because revelation is life. That's where we get life is from seeing God, revelation of God. God reveals himself, but he's revealing himself progressively, progressive revelation. Um, so what happens is in the Old Testament, God is re has revealed himself. He is love and he is fully love in the Old Testament, just like he's fully love in the New Testament. But his, the revelation of his love is less than the revelation of his love in the New Testament. The way the book of Hebrews puts it is this. It calls the two testaments or two covenants, it calls them different. It, I mean, I'm sorry, it calls them better. It doesn't call them different. They are not different. Hebrews says they're better. It's better. It's better. The New Testament is better. What's better about it? It's a fuller, more complete uh, revelation of God. Just like Jesus on the cross, the sacrificial lamb, is a fuller, complete, more complete revelation of the sacrificial lamb for sacrifice in the right, Old Testament. Right. It's the same love that God has. God loves his people. He, God loves his creation, so he's providing a way of forgiveness. But it's a clearer revelation in the New Testament than in the Old Testament. Same God, same love. That's true with holiness as well. Now, here's what happens. When you have a lesser revelation of the same thing, then you have more extremes that come to pass. So let's take love, for example. If God is love in the Old Testament, just like he's love in the New Testament, but there's a lesser revelation of him, then what is there going to be more of or more perception of? Hate, right, evil. Right, right. And so that extremity seems more extreme, not because God has changed or God is different, but because the revelation of God is less. Mm. Same thing with holiness. Let's say God is holy in the Old Testament and he's holy in the New Testament, which he is. Equally, he's the same. Right. It's not different. But the revelation of his holiness is less in the Old Testament. So then what, what then comes out of less revelation of holiness? More injustice. And so you have more extreme injustice, you have more extreme hate, and so that seems like there's more extremities to things, not because God is less, but because the revelation of God is less. Mm, that's good. I wanted to read this quote. I'm not sure who said it, but I think it's great at just kind of um, you know, revealing this. Um, it says this, all authors of the Bible are consistent with the idea that God's love and God's judgment are two sides of the same coin. Right. Fire can burn and fire can give warmth and comfort. It all depends on where we stand in relationship to the flame. The Old and New Testament reflect two sides of the same perfectly holy, holy God. Yeah, and that's totally true. They're not mutually exclusive. They are, they are, they are attributes of the same God that right. has a fullness of who he is. Right. God is a consuming fire, but depending on your relationship to that fire, it can provide warmth and comfort, or it can 
burn and destroy. Very good. All right, I think it's time to move on to question number five. Here we go. All right. If God were truly a loving God, how could he send people to hell? Hmm. So th this is a very easy softball question. Since the last ones were a little bit more intense, a little bit more yeah. difficult, we'll, we'll yeah. just do question number five, a very easy one here. If God were truly a loving God, how could he send people to hell? What do you think? You know, again, some, sometimes you ask these seemingly difficult theological <laughs> questions, and it's, it's, it's partly because we're not understanding definitions of even the words or the things that we're asking the question right. about. But more importantly, maybe it's because the question, because of that, we're not understanding those ideas. We the question is loaded. Okay, so yeah. why does God send people to hell? Well, it's already a loaded question in that you've already made an assumption that God sends people to hell. Now, here's the first level of answer on this question theologically. The answer is simply this: God doesn't send anybody to hell. Right. Now. How do we? How can we express this? Let's express it scripturally in a, in very well known verses. John three sixteen. For God so loved the world, He gave His only begotten Son. That whosoever believes in Him should not perish, but have eternal life. Oftentimes, we don't realize the verses after that. What they say, they're just as powerful and just as important. It says, "For God did not send His Son into the world to judge the world. Right. He sent His Son into the world that they may be saved." Whoever believes will be saved. But if you do not believe, now here's what it says, but if you do not believe, you've been judged already. You're already judged. You've judged yourself because he who does not believe is judged. God doesn't, in that sense, God doesn't, in, doesn't judge you in the sense of who we are, free will people that God has given free will to, to make a choice. The judgment that comes isn't God's judgment of, our, of us, it's our judgment of ourselves. Right. What did you do with what I gave you? I didn't do anything with it. Well, you, right. just, you just judged yourself. God didn't judge you, you judged yourself. That's why it doesn't say, what did God do with what God gave you? It's what did you do with yeah. what God gave you? So you're, the, the scripture says there in John three, it says, if you do not believe, then you're already judged. You've, you've, in that sense, already judged yourself. God doesn't, in that sense, now I'm not saying that God's not sovereign still over hell and even ultimate placement of people in hell. I'm not saying that he's not sovereign. Of course he is. What else can he be? He, right. he is completely sovereign over that. But within that system, he does not, in that sense, send you to hell. You send yourself to right. hell. Right. I love just this um, kind of phrasing that makes a lot of sense to me. It's, it's the idea that God loves you so much, you know, or, um, huh. that he's not going to force you to be with him yeah. for eternity, yeah. right? If, if you have spent your entire life running from Jesus and rejecting Jesus, what kind of love would it be for Jesus to force you to basically kidnap you and force you to be with him to give you what you don't he, want yeah to give you <laughs> the opposite of what you've been doing yeah. your entire life yeah. the problem or or um you know and even just 
this is the opposite of love, right? To force someone to be with you even though they've rejected you over and over. I mean, picture that in a, in, you know, you, you're, you approach a, a, a girl and you say, I love you so much that I'm going to force you to be with me. Well, mm. that's not love because once again, that love, it has to be a reciprocation of free will. And uh, I think many people, they want to be in heaven, but they don't want to be with God. Right, yeah, So yeah. they want to live their lives as their own God, but they also want to be in heaven. And they're not realizing that that's what he heaven is. Heaven is the, the place that is the result of all right. of the goodness, the kindness, the beauty, the joy, peace, love of God. And hell is the result of the complete opposite of those things. So, uh, and they often don't, don't um, understand that when you reject God, when you turn your back on, on him and you begin walking away from him, you're also walking away from everything that God is. Yeah. You're walking away from the goodness of God, the beauty, the kindness, the love, the peace, the patience, and you're walking towards a place, towards an end destination that is the complete opposite of those things. It's the most dark, evil, despairing, hopeless, peaceless, restless place because it's the complete absence of the attributes of what God is. And that is what you're choosing. By walking away from God, you are choosing to walk towards that place. That's what you want. <laughs> right. Yeah. I like that way of putting it that you said that, you know, God's not forcing. John 3, 16, it doesn't say, that, it doesn't say two things. It doesn't say for God so forced you Right. <laughs> for, and it also doesn't say, for God so ignored you. Right. It, it, it says, see, God, what God does for us in his love and justice, and they're wedded together completely in the cross. He takes what we should get, and he gives himself so that we don't get. Now, yeah. he does that. That's love, and that's justice. He doesn't wink at sin. Right. He doesn't just say, it doesn't matter, it'll go away. I'll just cancel it out in, in the sense of not addressing it. He actually takes that on himself, this, our sin, so that we can be with him. Right. And so he provides, that's why it says he gave, the action of love is give. Right. The action of love, and you were saying this better than I'm saying it right now, the action of love is not force. Right. But the action of love also is not ignore. It mm -hmm. is provide. For. And so God doesn't send someone to hell in the sense that he forces someone to go there or he doesn't make provision for them to get out. He actually does the opposite of those two things. And so how, does, how do we then get to hell? We go there ourselves. Yeah, yeah. And the, the good news is, is that scripture lays out clearly, if you want to be with God in eternity, this is this is. This is how. Yeah. Uh, John 14, 6, Jesus answered, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. Right. If you want to be with the Father for eternity, the only way that you can do it, not by good works, not by enlightenment, not by reaching the five five pillars or right. climbing some ladder, the only way is through, through Jesus. But the sad thing, even... Uh, Another uh, passage here, Matthew 7, 13 through 14, it says, Enter through the narrow gate, for wide is the gate, and broad is the road that leads to dest 
destruction and many enter through it. But small is the gate and narrow is the road that leads to life and only a few find it. So the kind of the sad thing in, in all, all of this is Jesus gives us a way to be with God for eternity, but the majority of people on, on earth, they're going to choose that broad way, that easy way, that way that is uh, that it perfectly in line with what their f f flesh des des desires and wants. They're going to see that and they're going to choose to walk down that, that path. If, God, if it was that God was sending us to hell, he would give no provision for us to get out of it, and he would give us no choice. That's good. But the fact is, he's, it, he's, it's the opposite. In his sovereignty and who he is as source creator, he gives the provision. He's the only one that could have done that. We can't give the, our own provision for that. But he gives us the choice. That's good. And we're the only ones that can really have that because that's the way he created that's good. us. Yeah, I mean, ultimately, we get to choose if we want Jesus to pay for the penalty for that's our a good, that's sin, a great way to put it. or that if way. we're going to attempt unsuccessfully to pay that penalty ourselves. That's a, that is a great short description of the gospel. Right. Right there. And, and, and it's good news because you get to choose if you spend the eternity that God has created for you or the eternity that you yeah. have created for you. I think I've asked this one. Okay, yeah, yeah let, well, let's do it. I believe this is, this the, is the last, last one. one. Let's do it. Let's do it. How does the current situation... Oh, okay. Well, this is a little eschatology now. Yeah. Switching from some theology and epistemology to some eschatology. Here we go. Yes. End times. The study of the end times. Eschatology. How does the current situation of the world, COVID-19, yeah. quarantining, etc., point to the end times and line up with end time yeah. prophecy. What do you think? I, I really don't want to delve too much. I'm going <laughs> right, to right. let you handle a little bit more of the <laughs> eschatology. I mainly just wanted to make one point with this, and it's actually from one of the most famous chapters that, you know, outside of Revelation, um, and that's Matthew chapter 24, you know, where, where the disciples are essentially approaching Jesus. And they're, you know, it, it, it says that they approached him privately. And they were like, hey, Jesus, when when is all this going to ha happen? When is your second coming? How, how do we know when we're in the end times? And I think it's so interesting. Not, I mean, obviously the entire chapter is. Um, it's absolutely fascinating. But the most interesting thing, I think, is the very first thing that Jesus says. And he says in Matthew chapter 24, uh, I believe it's verse 3, the very first thing that Jesus says is, Jesus answered, watch out that no one deceives you. Hmm. So obviously, Jesus, seeing the future, seeing everything that is going to, to ha happen, he knew that, that as we continue to progress as we move closer and closer towards the the end times there's going to be an increase in wickedness there's also going to be an increase right. in deception there's yeah. going to be an increase in lies people places things you know they're going to try to lie to you and for me it was it was actually a very um a freeing realization when i came to basically just just this point, you are being lied to. Now, mm. I'm not going to say what exactly was the lie or 
what the, the, the uh, truth is, but even just coming to that realization that in our world it could be, you know, your parents, a teacher, a book, social media, the news, your, your, your pastor, hopefully not, but, <laughs> but, but even just coming to, yes. to this idea that you are being lied to. Mm -hmm. Someone is be lying ready. to be prepared. you. Yeah. Some things that are being presented to you are true, and some things that are being presented to you are, are not. Even just realizing that, it's actually incredibly freeing, uh, freeing because you can, you can say, you know what, I don't, I, I don't have to believe everything that, that I, I hear, everything that I uh, see on the news, everything that I r read on, uh, online. Yeah. Right, I don't have to believe it all. I can actually use discernment. I can use wisdom. I can test everything I hear. I can hold everything up to to the scripture. Um, I can look at the world around me, and I can soberly and uh, um, uh, be able to divide and and see what is true and what is lies. And uh, I just wanted to read one more verse here, John eight forty four. It says this: You belong to your father. The, the, the devil, right. and you want to carry out your father's desires. He was a murderer from the, the beginning, not holding to the truth, for there is no truth in him. When he lies, he speaks his native language, for he is a liar and the father of lies. So Satan, the devil, is very good at lying and deceiving. Yes. The more that we realize that and just say, hey, I am being lied to, it actually strips the devil of his power and allows us to then with a free and open mind say all right i, I want to look into i want to delve into and distinguish what actually is being said and is it true yeah. yeah or not that's great i mean what you're describing there is the answer to the two questions that often are kind of asked here is why is it the end times? I mean, what's what's right. what's the end about it, and <laughs> and why is there so much conflict in, in these end times? Well, the reason why is because what the end times is is the end of what's been going on forever. Right. The kingdom conflict. If we could look into the spirit realm, what we will see is this unbelievable, incredible battle that is going on between two kingdoms, mm -hmm. two rules. It's been going on from the beginning. Once the fall occurred, it's been going on. And what the end is, is the end of that. And that's why there's so much conflict there, because it's a crescendo. It's right. a crescendo of all of that, which right. will bring it to the end. So, so, and I like what you said there, you know, um, lies. You know, the, the prefix before a word that kind of is indicative of that is anti. Right. You know, anti is it either means, inst you put anti in front of something, it either means instead of, in other words, a, a, a facade, right. a, a fake, or against, in other mm -hmm. words, the conflict, right? But in each case, it's something coming against the other thing. That's why it's anti. Anti-Christ. Against Christ instead of Christ. It's a lie. It's a, it's a lie. No, the, Christ is not wrong. You should not be against Christ. No, you cannot take the place of Christ. That's, that, is a, that is a mockery and it's a facade. So let me answer this way quickly. I'll, I'll, I'll sum it up, the COVID thing. Principle. Let's start with principle, eschatological principle. The scripture tells us very clearly we will not know when 
the end will come. Right. So we have to kind of understand that and say, okay, I can't necessarily then be you know, completely clear and definitive about any one given event. But the scripture says, you can know the signs of the times right. Okay, towards this end times. In other words, what it's saying is, we can know, we can know situations more than we can know particular events. I, the word I use there is platform. When I'm looking at eschatology and I'm looking at something like COVID-19 or what, you know, one particular thing, I'm looking at it from the angle interpretively of platform. So, for example, Antichrist. Antichrist, we know, is going to rise up in the end times. In fact, that's what is going to be the context of the end times. This culmination of this kingdom conflict and anti comes against the real thing. And it blows up. Okay, so Antichrist. Now, the scripture tells us something about how Antichrist will raise up, and it describes it. In other words, what the platform will look like. Not necessarily his name or exactly who it is or if it's a particular disease, but we know the platform. And here's the platform. The platform is that whatever it is, there's going to have to be something so desperate, so extreme, that people are going to fall to the lie and come under the control of that being. Yeah. And that being is going to have to have global control. So it's going to have to be exhaustive and it's going to have to be extreme. There's going to have to be some kind of platform for him to come in on like that. Mm -hmm. um, I, I, always, I always think of what you know, a lot of eschatologists did back in the, in the 30s and 40s and 50s is they, you know, they looked at Hitler that way. And there right. was some reason to look at him that way because of this, this principle, right. platform. You know, how did Hitler come into power? I mean, Germany is a Western culture, very Christian culture. Right. How did all that happen? How did people fall to that sort of thing? Desperation. The 1920s was all about unbelievable inflation coming out of World War II for Germany, unbelievable uh, uh, humbling coming out of unbelievable sense of no direction, no purpose, unbelievable fear of being totally uh, cast out. Right. So what happens? this person comes along on that platform and is able to come in and take control in an exhaustive way. Yeah. That's going to have to happen even blown up a million times. Right. <laughs> Maybe that's an exaggeration for Antichrist, but it's going to be the same dynamics. Right. It's going to have to be a desperate situation. If somebody's going to come in and have global influence and, and impact and have total control or have to total influence and, and control over situations, then it's going to be, have to be an extreme uh, uh, situation. So finally, the, the, the application is, with regard to this particular question, is really a question of how do you see COVID-19 and its ramifications and its results and or its potential ramifications and potential results as being consistent with that kind of platform? Right. Could it be that that would produce a platform or is producing a platform that would be consistent with this Antichrist yep. to raise up? With well, something so desperate that people are willing to come under the control of all over the world. Right. It's definitely increasing what you, you were just talking about, that desperate, the yeah. desperation. Yeah. Um, and I, I, I've been just, just from that same ch ch chapter, just want, wanted to, to read a little, little a bit. It says, you know, as this this is happening, as we're moving along, it says, you will hear of wars and 
rumors of wars. Isn't that interesting? Not, not only are you getting news about wars, but there's also rumors about other wars and things that are happening beneath the, the surface. But see to it that you are not alarmed. Such things must happen, but the end is still to come. Nation will rise against nation and kingdom against kingdom. This is kind of what, what you're saying. There will be famines. Yeah, I think we're, we're seeing that. Yeah. There will be earthquakes in various places. Yep. Um, all these are the beginning of birth birth pains. So it is interesting just looking at certain things, but obviously throughout history, like you could look at, okay, well, there was earthquakes here, there was a famine here, but to your point with the platform, 50 years ago, 100 years ago, 200, we didn't have the sort of worldwide platform oh, that social media is actually yeah. providing now. So once again, and it's kind of a stereotypical answer, we don't know when the, the end is, but we know that we are now in a time when it's much more likely than it was 100 years I ago. I think that's probably a good way to conclude it. Right. Yeah. All right. There it is. Would, would you like to uh, yeah, close yeah. us up in yeah. prayer? Let, let me pray. Yeah. Uh, as we've just talked about theology, yeah. right? The study of God and who God is. And let me pray and and uh, and, and and just say say to God what I think we our hearts have been doing and what want to be doing. And let's close that way. Lord, we we thank you for the fact that we can know about you that you are in the business of revealing yourself and that, Lord, I, we, we thank you as we sit here right now that the only reason we can even talk about such things is because you've revealed yourself to us. And Lord, we, we, we pray that you would give us life out of that and, and Lord, that you would be honored in it and that you would be high and lifted up because as the more you are revealed, the more we know who you really are, the more we see you as God and, and and Lord we just honor you Lord we just praise you we just worship you we thank you that we can be part of the delivery system in this world and that you use us in these ways and, and Lord that you your will will come to pass and Lord we don't reject that or or look down on that we rejoice in it because we know you're a good God and you are uh, you are totally loving God praise you and thank you for all those things and give you all the glory in Jesus name. Amen. Well, hey, I know that this dynamic of teaching is is new for all of us and it may not be what we're used to, but I still believe that whenever the word of God is preached, whether it's broadcast through our phones, our, our laptops, or our iPads, whatever it may be, I believe that the power and the anointing is still conveyed um, through those mediums of communication. And listen, I want you to know that every single week we're praying for the people that are listening. We're believing that through the preaching of the Word of God and through the teaching that is discussed, that God will do something in your heart that it would be changed and that the trajectory of your life would be forever changed as well. So maybe as you were listening, you began to ask yourself questions as, I don't know where I'll spend eternity. Maybe you have questions about who Jesus is and why he really came. I want you to know something before you go today, that Jesus loves you, that he loves you even in the midst of the sin that you may find yourself in. The Bible says that he calls us where we are. He doesn't expect us to clean ourselves up and to be perfect and, and to walk in the church as if we have no problems at all. But he calls us right where we are and says, come to me. 
I desperately want a relationship with you. The Bible says that all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. None are righteous, not even one. And some of you say, I never understood what I need to be saved from. My friend, you need to be saved from your sin. Sin is the very thing that separates you in a relationship with God. But Jesus Christ came from heaven to earth and he came to deal with the sin in your life and the sin in my life. The Bible says that Jesus went to the cross, he who had no sin, to become sin so that you and I could experience salvation. We don't stand in our own righteousness. We stand in the righteousness of Jesus Christ. And so maybe you're listening today and you're like, man, I don't know where I'll end up when I die or, and I don't have a personal relationship with Jesus. What do I need to do? I need you to know something. Salvation cannot be purchased. It cannot be earned. Salvation comes through repentance. It comes through the confession of your mouth and through the, free, and through the forgiveness of your heart. The Bible says this in Ephesians 2, chapter, uh, verse 8. It says that we receive salvation by grace through faith. In Romans chapter 10, verse 9, it says that if you confess with your mouth and believe in your heart that Jesus is Lord, you shall be saved. And some of you are thinking, wait a second, I just say a simple prayer. Yes, it's more than a prayer, though. It's a confession of the heart saying, I know I can't save myself. I've done things wrong. Forgive me of my sins. Come and be the Lord and the Savior of my life. And the Bible says on the other side of that confession, on the other side of that prayer, the Bible sees you as a new creation in Christ. The old is gone and the new is come. The Bible says you are now a child of God, an heir to the throne of heaven, a son or a daughter of the king. And all of the promises and the blessings within the word are yours. And I want to pray with you if you've never received Jesus. Repeat this prayer after me. Say, Dear Heavenly Father, I received your son Jesus as my personal Lord and Savior. Forgive me of my sins. Come into my heart. I believe that you died on the cross and were raised to life. I am now a Christian. Christ now lives in me. Amen. If you said that prayer for the first time or maybe recommitted your life to Jesus, I don't know, but this is what I do know. I wanna encourage you and help you in this journey. So if you don't have a Bible, let us know. We'd love to send you a Bible. If you made that decision for the first time, right below this video, there's a link that says, I made a decision to follow Jesus. We'd love to connect with you, to pray with you, to encourage you in this journey with the Lord. Listen, let me tell you what the enemy does. He wants you to live hidden apart from the body of Christ. He wants you to make, make you feel uh, uh, filled with shame and insecurity. Don't tell anyone about the decision, but my friend, listen to me. If you made that decision, let us know. We'd love to encourage you um, in your new journey with Jesus. You weren't created to do this life alone. You were meant to do it with other people who are following Jesus as well. Listen, we're continuing to pray with, for you and believing that your best days are still ahead. For everyone else, stretch your hands to heaven. Let me pray for you before we go and depart today. Father, I thank you for your family, God, for the family here at True North Church. God, I thank you that though we may not be able to see it with our natural eye, Father, I know in the spirit our family is growing. The kingdom of God is being advanced. And Father, I pray that no weapon formed against us will prosper. Father, I pray that greater is he who's in us than he who's in the world, that we can walk in faith and authority and not fear. Father, I pray that peace would rule and reign in the hearts of your people. Father, go with us this week. May we be filled with faith. May fear be far from us. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. God bless, church.